Everybody and welcome back to Bigfoot Collectors Club, the show where we talk to amazing guests about their personal paranormal history and share stories of high strangeness. I'm your host, Michael McMillan. With me always is your other host, Bryce Johnson, and our super producer, Riley Bray. Well, welcome back, boys. I don't want to waste any time with pleasantries because we have an expert episode for our listeners this week. We got a couple old school ufologists, occultists, Fordians, some classic (laughs) minds are in the virtual clubhouse tonight. I'm going to pass the baton over to my dear brother, Bryce Johnson, to introduce this week's guests. Yeah, I can't wait. It's it's been a long time coming. This seems the perfect fit for the uh the Bigfoot Collectors Club. I think you listeners are really going to enjoy. Our next guest, uh guests plural is uh our first one is a UFO author and field investigator whose work has earned him the coveted title of ufologist of the year not once but twice in his ufological career. He's a highly accomplished and active member in occult circles who once penetrated the inner sanctum of the infamous OTO, after which he sought his own direction by starting the Free Illuminist Movement. He's a consecrated Gnostic bishop, and it was his work that served as the missing key in Planet Weird's smash cult classic Hellier by providing them clues with his secret cipher of the Euphonauts. Club Scouts of all timelines, please welcome to the show, Alan Greenfield. Hello, I'm glad to be here. Hey, Alan, welcome to to the show. Oh, I'm delighted with that kind of introduction. I'll follow you anywhere. Oh, fantastic. fantastic. (laughs) We also have uh, another ufologist, ghost hunter, cryptid hunter, and about everything in between. uh, He's a true Fortean. He's not only a distinguished collaborator, contributor, editor, and publisher of Mr. Greenfield's work, but he's an esoteric writer and occultist in his own right. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Olaf Phillips. Uh, excuse oh. me, I'm also a consecrated bishop as well. Oh, oh shit, I didn't know that. Don't You're you a hot man to find I consecrated him right here in this room, right here on our stage. Well, that's I amazing. consecrated him. Oh my God. So we have two consecrated uh, bishops. Uh, You're a hard man to find out about. Welcome to the show, guys. I'm a minister of the Universal Church. I can marry people. So technically there are three three ministers here tonight. Actually, I have 14 separate ordinations. Oh my God. That's so (laughs) God. Do you really? I do. yeah. Yeah. Are any of the others, do they contain the legitimate apostolic succession of no. all of the lineages of the apostles of what's his name? Uh, Jesus. That's, it skips my Jewish mind, even no, though it's just Jewish. the one you provided, Alan. Well, we're gonna oh. we're gonna cut we're gonna circle back to Gnostic bishophood because I do have questions, and I'm sure our audience does as well. But I want to get to your new book, you guys, Saucers and Sorcerers. But first, before I do that, I want to say that, you know, Alan, I first became aware of your work when I was watching Hellier and completely obsessed with, by the way. Uh, and 
it was really when your work came into the fray that that things started to pop. And did you ever yeah. imagine that Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts would find its potency in something like Hellier? That's a... I had hoped when the first edition came out, which, by the way, was my first book from the late Illuminate Press, for which the publisher died for his trouble, <clears throat> and it just didn't materialize. I mean, it sold well. It sold the entire edition in you know hardcover, but um, it did not set off the uh, prairie fire that I meant. I expected it to. I don't know if I meant it, but I expected it to, because what the book is is a how-to book to uh, see cryptids and UFOs and calculate where they're going to show up next. Mm. And uh, but people have to actually do something, not just read the book, uh, sitting in a chair or right. on the couch yeah. eating chips. So that didn't happen, and. So, um, <clears throat> no, I did not expect that. I expected there would be some response, but I never watch, like, I won't listen to this because I probably will say, Alan, you fuck up. Can I say fuck up on your yeah. program? Oh, yeah, as yeah. much as you'd like. Fine. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I, I said, oh, dear. I looked like uh, trying to do a very bad impression of uh, Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Yes, <laughs> the real secret is to follow the synchronicity. So I did not particularly care for my performance. What I did care for was mm. almost always when I do that kind of interview for TV or radio or those sort of things. I mean, podcasts are usually real time, even if they're recorded. But... Um, <clears throat> it's like everything I ever did for the History Channel took hours and hours and hours, even overnight, whatever, you know, second day stuff. And then they cut it down to, you know, 30 seconds. Uh, yeah. But they they interviewed me for like four hours. Look at that clock, which I never saw until after the after the interview. A lot of people have made that into a conspiracy thing. What was the, the clock? Mess. I must have missed it. I'm, it, was it blinks. It's one of those uh, LED clocks, and it was this was filmed in a hotel room. They had a hotel suite, and uh, when I sat down, I didn't even notice the clock, but a lot of people did because they were looking for clues, whatever mm. that may be. So um, I just... Uh, talk they asked me a lot of questions some of them very pointed questions and it was about four hours i guess and this clock was going ding 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 ding, changing times so you would see oh yeah okay <laughs> oh so numbers are the key to this right but mm. uh, be that as it may when they cut it down to what it was 20 minutes it was faithful unlike the uh, hysterical channel it was yeah. faithful to what I had to say. In other words, the key points were all there in that 20 minutes, and it was pretty seamless. So yeah. I was real pleased with it. But then, uh, as Olaf will testify, he's my publisher, so I have to suck his uh, suck up to him. I'm sorry. I, I almost said something that would start yet another rumor that we don't need, and it isn't true. Uh, Whatever sells the books, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Wait till you see the next one. Oh boy. <laughs> I'll jump in there to your to your point. It did I think when people saw Hellier, it was for the first time they felt like, oh, this isn't your average ghost hunting show. Something something real is taking place. Something some there, there there's a mystery at play, and these guys are following it correctly. Uh which so thank you for that. But guys, tell us about your new book, Saucers and Saucerers, the stranger than fiction story of the UFO and those who chase them. Ola, you want to take that? Well, uh, you know, Alan had originally written this book a very long time ago uh, during the golden age of ufology. And it was it was kind of a play by play of, you know, going to a conference and what was going on and in, in a lot of the the kind of machinations around what was going on in ufology at that time. And, you know, I've, I've published at this point pretty much all of Alan's books. And it struck me because as a researcher myself, and I can, I can, te- I can testify to the thing about the history channel and it being multiple days. <laughs> I've done it myself, <laughs> but as a researcher, you know, I've always believed that a lot of, the best research was done in that golden age because in Mm. that golden age, it wasn't so much about making money or getting a TV show. Cause you know, everybody wants to get a TV show. I think I'm the only person on the earth that doesn't want a TV show, you know, but everybody wants one. Yes, Alan, you want one, but, (laughs) but it's, um, you know, it, it was done by people for people some of whom were classically trained in science, some who weren't, but they did a lot of really good research. And I think one of the, one of the problems that we face today is that ufology has amnesia and a lot of the things that we do in ufology or UAPs or whatever the fuck they want to call them now is we go backwards. And, you know, for example, there's a documentary that was made in the seventies And during the documentary, they realize that these cattle were being mutilated. And this is far before Linda Moulton Howe and and a strange harvest and all that. But they were like, okay, the cattle are being mutilated. They had the forethought to run a black light over the cow. And the cow is just covered in phosphorescent powder. Basically, it was tagged. I've never heard that since. And, you know, you bring that up and they're like, oh, I haven't done that. Okay, well, they did that in the 70s. You know, let's get on with it. So when I read Alan's book, I thought, you know, first of all, it was a bitch to find because, you know, he published it basically privately. The only self-published book I have ever done. Right. Mm. It sold about 100 copies, (laughs) mostly at the Fate Magazine convention of 1976. Awesome. he has two books actually that were underground published, shall we say? That and the and the Grail Within is also was extremely well. Limited. No, 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 no. That w- it wasn't the Grail Within wasn't published back in the day. Right. It was first of all, it was somewhat different, a lot different. Yes. Uh, courtesy of Olive's uh, <laughs> uh, administrations, shall we call it that? Uh, but but it, uh, a friend of mine printed it. Uh, 93 signed and numbered copies that I, because of the sensitive nature of the material, sex magic, buy the book, or you won't know how to do it. Uh, uh, Magic, I mean, you know, it means sex. It's instinctive. But uh, 
Uh, it is in my neighborhood anyway. But, um, well, here in the of, Golden Ghetto. No, I, no, no. Uh, no. I, I want to finish this, please, please, yeah. please. So I handed these out to people at the time that I took to be already initiates. Mm. Uh, that was during my OTO days, which I call D A Z E days, not the other word. And um, I got a call from King Dave, the U.S. The future at that time, U.S. Grandmaster, and he said, oh, I really appreciate this because now I understand. And I thought, what's wrong with this picture? He's the, the big kahuna of the OTO in this country, and that United States, and he uh, was one of the two people, his wife being the other one, who were given the ninth degree in the OTO by the present uh, Grand Poobah, who I know as Bill. Um, but uh, he's calling me and telling me that my book clarified things for him. But I wow. never intended it to be a commercial venture. Yeah. However, time and tide and things go. And uh, Olive and I talked about it, and I said, I think it is now a time that a you know a uh, commercially available edition comes out because it is unique in that. I know you want to talk about saucers and saucers, but let me just get this. We'll out. get back to that in a minute. Okay, right after this word from Babo, B-A-B-B-O. You don't know what that is, do you? It's Babo, a Dutch no. cleanser. It's really great on ground in never mind. Yeah, I do know what OTO is, but I don't know what Babo is. For those Babo listening at home. is the way the OTO scrubs its it's image yeah. so it that people like will still join. Entity. Yes. Yeah, so Bordo Templi Orientis for those who are listening at home who may not know. But go on, please. Yes, and don't try it at home. It's not a really... You will find that the only thing that is enlightened is your wallet. So... <laughs> Recurring theme in a lot of these organizations. Well, yeah, they're all. I mean, they're not any different from the Golden Fraud or you know any of those. And so that was I did. I was not the founder of Free Illuminism. I should clarify mm. that. But I was one of the early, you know, enthusiastic members. And the guy who founded it, uh, Tal Olive, uh, no relation. That's. A L E P H. Um, well, it sounds the same. It's, it's true. Problem with biblical translations, words with different inflections, you know. Also, the problem with podcasts, you can't see the spelling of the names that we're saying. <laughs> well, Olive is an O L O V M O U S Hey, I want to jump back in here. And one thing that caught my attention in your book was this idea of the magical archetype and and its manifestation as part of what we consider the paranormal. Can you guys talk to us a little bit about what this magical archetype is and how it manifests in our world? At the time that I was writing Saucers and Saucers, which is mid-1970s, uh, and the way that it is now is based on my uh, my diary of that period. So it does do one of the things that I set out to do, which is to convey what it was like when ufology was something that you could know literally 
everybody who was involved in it worldwide. And also a time when this was what I was getting to when you were asking me about publishing it and a time when people did it because they were interested. There was no TV shows. I mean, you could go on certain radio shows, but that was about it, you know, and, and I think the profit imperative, although was there for some people, it's always there, but the profit imperative wasn't such a driving factor. And that, that's why I felt when I read it, I needed to publish it. Everything he's about to tell you I've heard, and I'm telling you, that's why I published it, <laughs> you know, to close that, that out. Yes. Thank you all. You know, it's this magical, magical moment of real ufology. First generation ufologists were people like, well, there were three types. One were the hardcore contactees, which also had a fascist element uh, to it. But we'll pass on that and not mention Adamski's name. Oops. Well, he's dead. He can't do anything about it. But uh, uh, that came out of the I Am movement, which came out of uh, the Silver Shirts, which was basically a uh, German-American Bund uh, uh, type group, but made up of people not born in Germany uh, in the 1930s. I know because my father was one of the people that infiltrated it and uh, which was relatively dangerous in uh, my hometown, especially since the other guy that was doing it was the local rabbi. However, they Whoa. both survived, thankfully, since I wouldn't be here or anywhere if wow. they had not. But um, uh, that was that's a direct uh, antecedent to the contactee movement, not that all contactees are that way. And then you have the nuts and bolts people, people that were ex-NASA or... Uh, like Stan Friedman, unemployed as ex-NASA, so they found a new gig, and that happened to be UFOs. Um, and then there were people like me who were looking at the whole thing as with fresh eyes. You know, we had all believed they were Martians at the beginning of our tenure. We were second gen, and... Uh, centered around what was then called the teen ufology movement. That was the late Tim Beckley and Gene Steinberg and me, and they're all depicted in the book, but um, um, pretty good number of us are still around. And uh, that was, we knew all the first-gen people, and I tended to side with the best of them, which was Jim Mosley and Gray Barker and other people who had a sense of humor, yeah, as well as not being ex-NASA. I mean, Jim was the son of an army general, but he hated his dad, and his dad hated him. <laughs> <laughs> an original hippie. <laughs> Why is it important to have a sense of humor when, when, when dealing with this stuff? Oh, that's a good question, but uh, I, I think the there are two different types of answers to that. Mm. Uh, one is that if you don't have a sense of humor, the phenomena, in my opinion, and that I include magic and occultism and ghosts and apparitions and Bigfoot and Littlefoot and uh, all all kinds of cryptids and fairy lore and all of that, I Everything. think are all different aspects of the same thing. 
mm-hmm. seen in different ways. But I think yeah. uh, the real challenge is to say what is reality, and reality seems to be a lot more malleable mm. uh, than is generally recognized. That's my big uh, you know, revelation. And I think we're finally catching up to that, Alan, and we'll get to more of that later. But I think that's why there's this resurgence of of this type of work is, is you, you, you guys were really sort of ahead of the curve in, in saying that, you know, perhaps all this stuff is related somehow under the guise of something. We're not sure what, and, and we're only now really starting to sort of catch up with that and play with that philosophy and, and, and feel for ourselves that, oh my God, there's, this feels right. There's something true about this. Well, I don't, I don't know that they were the first to discover it. I mean, you know, you call oh, no. It, no, you call it Fortean because of Charles Fort. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, you're talking about the late 1800s, early 1900s. I think they were the first to really embrace it. Because at mm-hmm. the same time, you know, you've got guys like Keel, you know, and Mosley and them that are going out and actively looking for this stuff and experiencing it. One thing I did want to add before I turn it back over to Alan, you know, one of the, re- and I think he was probably going to say this, but one of the reasons I think you need a sense of humor And I think it is honestly sorely lacking in ufology today. Um, I think you need a sense of humor because it screws with you. Mm. If you're really a 14 and you understand the true, you know, what I perceive at least to be the true nature of this stuff. Trickster. If you don't don't have a sense of humor, it screws with you. You know, when they did the the hymn of Pan, you know, it's like Pan's a trickster. He's going to screw with you. In fact, I've had many a conversation with Alan about, you know, when they did that and what they experienced versus what I've experienced and trying to invoke that stuff or what Alan's experienced. But mm. I think you have to have a sense of humor because, as I said, it will fuck with you if you don't. All of these areas have a trickster aspect to them. Yes. And if you take that seriously, you're going down a long garden path that leads nowhere and except maybe to insanity at some point. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I've seen aspects of that. But if you get the joke, so to speak, that Joe Simonton has a spaceship land and they cook him some pancakes. Sure. And you say, well, that's got to be a hoax, but it probably is not a hoax because there are so many cases like that. And most of them are what Keel calls silent contactees. By the way, Keel was a relative latecomer. Um, I mean, he, he, well, he had chased, he said, a Yeti in the 1950s across the Himalayas, but, uh, <laughs> but he was not involved in ufology. And I didn't become aware of his existence until uh, Mosley and I talked on the phone what was then very expensive long distance a lot. Yeah. And he, and the, uh, the, the, well, Mosley was very wealthy. And at the time, I was pretty well off too, or my dad was pretty well off and he paid the phone bill. <laughs> so um, um, Jim said, You've got to meet this guy. I said, Well, I'll be up for New Year's Eve like I am every year. He said, You've got to meet this guy. He is, he is it. I said, Oh, uh, John Keel. Okay. Never heard of, oh, Jadu, yeah, and the mm-hmm. Batman book. Uh, yeah, he said, well, the Batman book was just sort of, you know, Batman was a craze at that time. So Keel was, got involved relatively late, but, uh, and so did Stan Friedman, by the way. I never heard his name until the 70s, you know, and mm. I'm reasonably well informed. But um, it's, 
now down to third and fourth and fifth generation people. And it's a larger group. There are, the, as you pointed out, the TV programs, which is, doesn't say that they're accurate, but it does say they you know, bring legions of people to at least on the surface get interested yeah. in this stuff. Yeah, I like, to, I like to think it keeps the mystery alive for people. You know what I mean? It drums up mystery. And, and for that, it's a good thing. Well, the thing is they push the ye old ETH mm. always. always. Extraterrestrial hypothesis, right. Yeah, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which, first of all, isn't a hypothesis. It's a, it's a concept. Mm-hmm. It's not even a theory. It's a, it's a concept. It's a test, yeah. I think, I think it also, in some cases, it helps. But in some cases, you know, it, it, it harms. And I watched... I'm a big fan of Bering Sea Gold and Gold Rush and all that, and, you know, and, and Oak Island and all that crap. But after one episode, I saw this show about, oh, we're going to find mysterious Bermuda Triangle stuff, right? And it's like, you know, you watch these guys and they're wasting money, like they're burning it, you know, and, and they go down there, oh, look, it's an airplane. And it's like, yeah, but I'm not, I'm an idiot. I can tell that's not a TVM, you know, Avenger. It's like, they find this thing and, you know, I was watching with my girlfriend and it's like, they find this thing and it's like, Oh my God, we found this a mysterious anomalous object. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, that's the, the bottom of a space shuttle. Those are, those are heating tiles. I mean, anybody mm. who grew up in the eighties and watched space shuttles go up and down, you're going to know what a, you know, what a tile looks like. And I'm like, I know exactly what that is. It's a piece of the challenger, you know, it, Don't, I mean, wow. that's great, but you know, they're wasting money and they, people continually tune in and it's like, Oh, you're going to find something mysterious. And they never do. But conversely, I had a conversation with a coworker of mine once upon a time who served on nuclear submarines. And he was telling me about, Oh yeah, we, we took our, you know, our fast attack sub right across the Bermuda triangle. And we heard weird shit in the water. And, and the, the interesting thing they told me is about this place called Autech. When they, I knew about Autech already, but when they went by Autech, they actually went through a degausser that degaussed the entire submarine before they went into the Bermuda Triangle. Well, the, the mysterious Bermuda Triangle guys, you know, they're diving on bullshit wrecks. But I spent five minutes talking to my coworker, and it's like, what? You're degaussing a submarine? Why? So I, I do think that on occasion, you do get the shows where they push the envelope. But then you get the other shows where they, it's just the same tired crap that they put in a recycler. Yeah, and it seems to lend to that uh, the the amnesia effect that I think Alan Absolutely. was talking about, where we just kind of cycle through the same lore over and over again. I'm sitting here listening to you guys talk about first, second, third, fourth generation stuff, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I in, going back to Charles Fort and the magic and spiritual movement stuff that was happening at the turn of the century in the late 1800s. And it really does seem to me, and I know this is something that the field that you guys get into and a subject that you talk about, it does seem to be that up until the, the flying saucer appears in the mid 20th century, all this stuff that we're talking about has much more of a magic with a K kind of feel to it. Some sort of, interaction with something supernatural or otherworldly or hyperdimensional. And then once we go through the nexus of Roswell, the flying saucer, fate no, 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 magazine, no. all this stuff, hold on. No, hold on. It, just, it that, that this, 
that in other words, that the flying saucer stuff really does feel like a natural progression of the occult stuff that was taking place earlier and not necessarily a separate phenomenon. It almost feels like an evolution of the occult. Would you agree or disagree? I agree completely. I think it has something to do with post-war jitters because uh, after World War II, I mean, some were seen in World War II, the Foo Fighters and other uh, nicknames for them. But after World War II, uh, I have to take off my UFO hat and put on my occult hat for a minute, okay? Mm. The occult movement, if you want to call it that, in the late 1940s was at its low ebb. It had been in its best position at the turn of the 20th century from the 19th to the 20th. Uh, even then, it was several hundred people. Like uh, I measure that by the real original Golden Dawn, and it was several hundred people. A lot of them were well-known people, so that tends to magnify it. But it was not worldwide. It was a minor interest. And by the 1940s, it was people that you could number on both hands, period, mm. worldwide mm -hmm. that I know of, at least in the English-speaking world. So that had to migrate somewhere if it had any validity at all. And in December 1947, Crowley died, who was the titular, you know, big kahuna of his generation. He was already, he died in poverty and a, and a heroin addict. Wow. Um, so, you know, he was, uh, had two or three, you know, disciples at that time, and he had the the, the well-known lodge in Southern California, that was it. It was all that was left. So in comes Borderland Sciences, which was headed at that time by uh, uh, a man who was both an occultist and what would later come to be called a ufologist, even though the term UFO didn't even exist at that time. And... Uh, he wrote a book called The Coming of the Guardians in 1945, Whoa. probably the end of the war. And it was about flying saucers. And then you have that spate of things aided and abetted by uh, Ray Palmer um, mm -hmm. uh, in his various magazine efforts. I mean, I'm not cynical about that. I think it was just what was available then and if it weren't for Palmer, I probably wouldn't have gotten involved in this stuff. So Totally. You know, um, but uh, he was definitely a, a showman. Uh, <laughs> not a shaman, a showman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mead, Mead Lane. Mead Lane, that's the author of The that's Coming the of guy, the Guardians? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And he was, at that time, the head of Borderland Sciences Research Associates, as it was known then. It's now... BSRF Foundation instead of Associates, but um, it has been around now since, well, since the 1940s, so it's older than me, and mm. you don't get much of that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> once uh, Mead Lane passed, uh, it, it, it was turned over to Riley Crabb, who was much closer to being a nuts and bulls person, so the material that came out of that was less and less significant, although they still have the original stuff, the uh, the trans channeling of uh, 
of some of the people that Mead Lane had assembled, and it's like the best of the best of that sort of thing. And um, that was really before was before I was born, and you know they were already had that in place. Um, so they produced a lot of stuff, and it's still on their website. You know they they're still around, and uh, they really are not a large outfit, but they they were the pioneers, and had a big influence on me for whatever that's worth. So um, then came the saucers as such, and the thing that strikes me about that is. The first thing that occurs to people is they come from outer space. Why? Mm. They're not seen in outer space. They're seen on the earth or near the earth. So what would it be about that and every other one of these uh, types of denizens of otherware that would make you think that they were from another planet and I don't see that. I did at first because it was intriguing, and maybe that's all there is to it. But um, And it was a, a time where people were very unsophisticated about what they see in the air. I was standing in the Atlantic Ocean before I could even swim. And I looked up, and I, I must have been three or four, in, and it was in Miami, I believe. And I looked up, and I saw a contrail uh, and I thought, hmm, looks like one of those jets or whatever a, a little kid would say that was sure. equivalent of that. And I hear another kid a little further down also standing in the ocean saying, there goes a soul ascending into heaven. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, yeah, that kind of says it all because that's not merited. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I, somehow or other I knew what it was, maybe because my parents were somewhat more scientific or maybe right. because I was from an army town, you know, I, I don't know, because I lived near the local airport, uh, whatever, but uh, where they were still flying biplanes. But um, yeah. that flying saucers come along, the Kenneth Arnold case and – uh, allegedly the Roswell case, which was a balloon. Okay, let's pause right there because we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to hear about the. I want to hear about it being a balloon, and then I want to bring up a point that you make in your book, which ties into all of this that I find very exciting. Okay, we're back. We're sitting here with Alan Greenfield and Olaf Phillips. Okay, so right before break, Alan, you were saying Roswell. Now, we've done a whole, you know, we're big Roswell people here. We've debated and talked about it from all sorts of angles. We're open-minded. We're non-believers in most things, except ghosts. We know ghosts are real, right? Everyone knows that ghosts are real. Yeah, um, prove that. We've proven Define ghosts are real. real. <laughs> no, well, now wait a minute. They exist, but so they does. Exist. But it's you know they are by definition ghosts, which means they are ephemeral, which means they can change. Yes, uh, Bigfoot right. comes out of a flying saucer. There are several accounts of that. Now, yep. what does that say? Does that what does that say about 
Bigfoot? And what does it say about flying saucers? Right. Maybe there are two aspects of the same thing, you know. So, but the, you know, nuts and bolts people will say, well, maybe Bigfoot comes from another planet in the star system of Sirius 2B, which I say, no, it's never been seen coming from Sirius. It's been seen in the forest. But, you know, Back in the day, I talked to Ted Phillips, who at the time was a very famous nuts and bolts guy. He was MUFON's trace case guy. And the guy was smart, did amazing work. But it's like you try to talk to him about, you know, Bigfoot and UFOs. It's like they're different. And I think there's a there's a kind of push to say, well, <clears throat> here's the nuts and bolts guys over here. And they don't believe any of the other stuff. And here's the spiritual guys over here. And they don't believe any of this stuff. You know, people like Alan or me, you know, we're in the middle. That's what the for- nature of Fortuneism is. And I well, wanted to give a good example of that. That, you know, you think of Jacques Vallée, right? Jacques Vallée, you know, he's a, he's a scientist. He's a computer scientist. <clears throat> he's famous. I mean, he was immortalized in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, Trans- Francois Truffaut played him. But if you actually read his work, right, it actually bends toward the Fortune. You know, you've got the messengers of deception. You've got Passport to Magonia. You know, he's talking about men in black, you know, appearing during the Middle Ages, during the plague. <clears throat> you know, you, he's talking about the archetypes, which you asked about earlier. You know, he's discussing the archetypes, but nobody reads that stuff. They only want to hear about Jacques Valley, UFO researcher. It's, it's mm-hmm. like you can't belt the two. And it's like his latest book. You know, in his latest book, he basically says that when they detonated the nuclear bomb during the testing, right, they opened a portal. It's like, you know, that that has nothing to do with UFOs, so to speak, theoretically. I mean, it does, but, you know, but to the nuts and bolts guys, they're just going to ignore that he ever said that. (laughs) It just just didn't happen. You know, that's why Alan's work is so powerful, because he, he popularizes and makes Fortianness accessible in a way to me personally, only Keel did before him. Well, mm. the thing I really like that you say early on in the book, Alan, is this idea of we deal with kind we're dealing with sort of two, and I'm paraphrasing you here, so forgive me, but we're dealing with sort of two aspects of the UFO. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. One Forgiven. whatever <laughs> the mystery of Whatever the original intention, if there ever was such a thing, of what these things are and why they appear, and then we're dealing with the second aspect that is the mythology that we have collectively built over the years to explain what they are and why they are here. And one of those things it sounds like is obviously we've all sort of started to say, or some people, the loudest people may have said, it's from another planet. And we have to be able to stop when we're thinking about this stuff and separate those two aspects and go, one of those is the mythology that we've created to help explain this phenomenon. And the other is the phenomena itself, which we have no idea yet what it may be. Correct? Is that That's sort of in the ballpark, right? Yeah, I don't think that we really will ever resolve this completely because we are relatively limited creatures. I mean, from uh, the point of view of biology, we just came into existence like 
30 minutes ago from yeah. so that's biological time in geological time you know it's even uh, we just came into existence two minutes ago and when you look at cosmological time that is from the time of the supposedly the big bang on uh, we are uh, not even a whole second so we developed and evolved these senses, five of them, and the main thing about the senses is to be able to reproduce and kill, but avoid being killed. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the, the what our senses are, and maybe our brains as well are uh, evolved to do. What happens when we confront something that is totally other? We're going to put our own uh, mythos on it. Now, the mythos may be true in a certain sense, but it doesn't mean that we have understood the phenomena altogether. There's that uh, Whitley Stryber thing of the, the masks, that you never see the final mask. Well, I think that is, whether that's literally true or not, it's symbolically certainly true. We see different guises, but there are clues as to what the phenomena are not. Mm. Uh, uh, Like, how many Bigfoot droppings are there? There should be (laughs) lots and lots, considering how many sightings there are. Um, So, uh, and they get more and more frequent, and they... You know, I, I think it's conceivable that a a dawn man that looked like a Wookiee has been around for, you know, since primordial times. But I think it's much more likely because the surrounding stuff is just as strange as flying saucers and uh, fairy lore and all of these different – and ghost lore, all of these different areas seem to have the common denominator the closer you get the further away they get. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're not real in some sense. It does mean that we have limitations on how much we can understand. So why do any research on it? I think because while you may never get the full picture, you definitely, if you follow the synchronicities, get something. And I certainly have, and I encourage people who are a lot younger than me, keep at it, but stop trying to, you know, fit it into a a neat box because you can't. Mm. If you do, you're giving in to the trickster, and then that's that garden path I spoke about. End of sermon. No, No, that's great. I'll I'll add a quote to that. Carl Jung said, synchronicity is an ever-present reality for those who have eyes to see. And it sounds like, you know, that this stuff can take place all the time, anywhere around us and through us. And, you know, and I want to talk about this sort of extra sense. You guys talk about in your book that I want to just read a little quote about it. Uh, You know, in your book, you say there exists a non-apparent sense within man, the exact function of which is unknown at present and the nature of the medium through which it operates being also unknown. And I guess I want to add to that mythological question we were discussing earlier. Do you think this phenomenon can take the mythos that we add to it and reconfigure itself? And, 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 and in fact, our mythos has power 
to this well, phenomenon and it takes it and it provides into it and it's and it morphs and the flying saucer becomes circular and translucent and and the technology always seems to just be out of our grasp because well, it's, it's taking what we know and provide to it and morphing yeah but it's it's a feedback loop mm. because you know the minute one of the things you understand when you follow the synchronicities you know i always tell people you know the answer the answers are all around us we just have to look we just have to look, observe, listen. And I, I learned that from Alan. But if you go into the preconceived motion, like the ex, the extraterrestrial hypothesis or whatever, the phenomenon itself, because of its trickster nature and its desire to screw with you, will give it back to you. And mm. it, will, it will take whatever you're throwing at it because you're coming at it with an idea. It's going to receive that. Mirror that back to you. Mess with it and then feed it back to you to confuse you mm. and, and like anything else, you know, the answer, the answers are even when, because we're, we all have preconceived notions, you know, we all have innate bias, right? But, you know, one of the things they teach you in this stuff is you've got to clear your mind. You've got to clear your mind and you've got to reset your expectations of what you're experiencing. Because when you experience a phenomenon, you just need to experience the phenomenon. As he said, don't put it in a box. Just see it, see what you see, and then interpolate what you see. But if you come at it and say, well, I'm watching Bigfoot descend from a UFO, I guess that means that Bigfoot's an alien. It's going to take that, process it, and then push it back to you. Mm. The, the other thing you've got to remember is that, you know, Arthur C. Clarke's famous quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Because we're, we are limited in our processing capabilities and potential. And so, you know, we, we don't honestly know what the phenomenon is. But as, as I said, it, it's a feedback loop. It, it is aware and it will screw with you. So, so this is great. This is something that I was talking about with the guys last episode and our, our guest on the show where it does feel like so. Absolutely. So. In there have been moments where, whether practicing some sort of magical ritual or simply engaging with something as simple as a tarot deck, when asking a question or seeking something, I'll get a response, usually in the form of a synchronicity, some sort of meaningful coincidence, or and oftentimes it'll be a card itself. Um Oh my gosh, this card was the literally the card I just saw on Instagram before I sat down to do this. You know what I mean? Because you want this, this idea of there does see in those moments, there does seem to be something, for lack of a better term, on the other side, some type of trickster intelligence that's going, gotcha, or yep, I'm here signaling that, right? And but how do we engage with something like that in a way that we're not falling into some sort of negative feedback loop where it's like, all right, you want to see an alien gray? Here's an alien gray. Or you want to see a Bigfoot? Here's a Bigfoot. <laughs> How do we cut through this 
trickster bullshit and actually communicate with something that we feel inherently is there? Or is it just our reptilian, the hardwiring reptilian brain trying to say, well, this coincidence actually has an intelligence behind it and we're projecting our own self onto it? I know this is sort of a mixed up question, but I'm trying to figure out like who's the, how do we get to the thing behind the thing? I'm not sure we can, but we can certainly not think Eureka at every step. Oh, mm. I figured out that blah, blah is true, but blee, blee is not. And then, you know, that's the word of the law from Sinai or whatever. That's not the case. It, there are going to be, but behind curtain number three, it's a new car, right? Okay, so uh, that's probably before all y'all's time. No, we're with you. <laughs> yeah, okay, so um, uh, you just assume there's something behind the curtain. It may be the Wizard of Oz and a real wizard, or it may be the guy that was just trying to get home, like Dorothy. Uh, so, you know, the, it, it, if you keep it as something experiential underlying, mm. rather than something, and also consciousness expanding, rather than something to be resolved in the way that, oh, if you want to visit Cambodia, you get on a plane, you take your passport and your 452 shots and uh, a really, really nice pistol uh, concealed. It. Well, that's another story. But uh, that isn't the <laughs> way you get to Magonia. Mm. Right. Mm. And it's important that if you find yourself in Magonia, you have to have a little uh, Christian science approach to it and say, I'm not really here. Mm. Okay. I, think it's, I think it's also... You know, because it messes with you, I think that, that to use Alan's analogy of, you know, there's a car behind door number three. I think it's also when you go into it and you open door number three and there's a car, you know, most people stop there and they go, oh, my God, it's a car. I think that that it's in it's incumbent upon us as, quote unquote, researchers, right, is to say, OK, what kind of car is it? What year did it come from? What's the color? What direction is it pointing in? Because what the phenomenon does is it says, I'm going to screw with you and I'm going to give you a, a silver Toyota Celica. Okay, well, we put Toyota Celica into the NAC cipher. What do you get back? What year was it in? You know, put that in there. Or what happened in that year? Or where was this car manufactured in 1974? What weird shit happened in this part of Japan in 1974? You know, you've got to look beyond because it, it is messing with you. It's giving you the car that you expect. But mm. the, the answers are all around you in the car. Maybe there's a note stuck on a on a dash on the dashboard on a you know on a post-it note that says Magonia. I mean, things mm -hmm. like that happen. That's the nature of the synchronicity. Alan, this kind of moves into your lane. I mean, this this search and, and the strangeness of this phenomena and and you know, it, this quest for the grail, I want to talk about. This, this, this quest uh, that we all can take part of, we can all participate in. Perhaps that this phenomenon, when it's teasing us and tickling us with novelty and spontaneity, maybe it's pushing us in the direction of this quest for us as the individual, for us as the society. In other words, this phenomenon is an active agent in our, in our evolution and our refinement of who we are, not only as a 
as a human being, but as a society and, and, and where our destiny might lie. Uh, can you talk about just that, that grail search and how it might relate to the paranormal? Well, I think that you're on the money there. You're, uh, let me go back to Hellier. One of the things that made me very enthusiastic about that, because frankly, I expected yet another ghost hunters, you know, the two plumbers go into the building and they hear a rat in the wall. They go, let's check our instruments. It's a ghost. It's a rat. But, you know, they don't hear me because I'm saying it to the TV. Uh, It's one of two things is the case. Either it's the case that the phenomena exists in order to challenge our consciousness and expand it, or as a byproduct of the great what's it that happens to be, if we pursue the synchronicities, we will find ourselves in a much I was going to say a better place, but that sounds like you have to die first, which may be the case. (laughs) But uh, uh, you're in a better place philosophically, a la, you know, Jung and uh, uh, Joseph Campbell. You're back in the garden. Well, pick in the garden where you can pick fruit. Whatever your metaphor. You're you're marching toward Gnosis. I mean, this is what the concept of Gnosis is about. Yeah, that is that is exactly it. That's I I tend not to use the word bishop very much anymore because it has specific religious connotations that not my thing. I'm Jewish, you know. <laughs> the Jewish bishop. First thing the guy that was the <laughs> head kahuna on UFO hunters, they uh took me over to the Redstone Arsenal, which I had been to before, and what's his name? Bill help me here. Bill Bill Burns. Bill Burns, yeah. Mm. First thing he says is, how can you be Jewish and be a bishop? And I said, well, it's a Masonic title, blah, 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 blah. So I say empowerment and the ability to empower just so that I'm not uh, endorsing some specific uh, religious uh, Mm. point of view, which is probably a long way from my own. You know, the the roots of this stuff are, are... uh, how shall I put it, pre-Christian and maybe mm-hmm. even pre-human. I don't know. Mm. It goes yeah. way, way back to the earliest manifestation of, of uh, uh, the occult or the spiritual or the religious, which would be probably shamanism. And uh, so I, I, I've veered away from the use of that term, but we do all act as psychopomps to ourselves and sometimes to other people, which is by going through a certain ritual process, whether you call it ritual or not, you experience growth if you don't run away from it, which a lot of people do. And when I saw Hellier 1 and 2, because I watched them together, and then I thought, oh, well, 
other than my appearance as the Godfather. Well, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> Look, you're talking to two actors here and a musician who's seen yeah, himself. Yeah, that's, that's perform. the high compliment, man. Well, we you're talking to uh, the father well, of a filmmaker, so you know that's. <laughs> I was, I was just saying, none of us really like to watch ourselves on screen. None of us enjoy it. It's all fine. So you can, you can, re- oh, you can relieve yourself of that. It's horrible. It's absolutely, I, I dread it. <laughs> I hate it so much. Well, you know. I agree. But I don't much listen to performances. So what I got out of Hellier was, you know, towards the end of that, they do a ritual and they were lucky to come out of it alive because Pan didn't show up. On the other hand, they had been looking for days for Terry Rist and Indrid Cold. And they all got cold when they completed the ritual. I said, well, you got what you asked for. You just didn't get what you asked for. And having done pan invocations and knowing what the word pan means, because it means all, but it also means panic. And I have uh, been a party to that and having to restrain a guy with, you know, that had really turned into Pan. Yeah. Uh, actually, my concern was that a bear would be in the back of the cave and would crawl out and that would, <laughs> you know, that would be found footage. You know, yeah, we, <laughs> we did a Bigfoot Ooh. hunt for the podcast uh, a few months ago and it, once we got out of the woods and in the dark, I was much less concerned with Bigfoot as I was about a bear or a mountain lion coming to get us. So, once or, you're facing, you know how many people disappear in the, in the national forest? Oh boy! Every don't year? get Bryce started. Don't get Bryce started, Alan. We don't have time for this conversation. Well, okay. When when the uh, I'll just call them the Hellier people, the Newkirks yeah. and Associates, sure. went to that little town in Kentucky that had the cult, or at least allegedly had the cult. And the the local, well, not local, the cops said, I don't live in this town because these people are, I'm paraphrasing here, these people are berserk. Mm -hmm. And in Yiddish, that's Meshugana. And when I heard the story, not in Hellier, but from them, I said, so did you go unarmed into this little town? Because I wouldn't. I mean, there would there would be a pistol up my sleeve, and I'm certainly not glad to see them because that is rough territory. And yeah. the fact is, in the in the in the parks, people disappear all the time. I think yeah. some of them, the Deros take them, but that's a whole another. Oh program. boy! Mm, all right, we'll have to have you back for that. Yeah, getting into some shaver territory here. I love it. Well, uh, we are wrapping up this. I cannot believe we've just we're running out of time here. Uh, Bryce, do you have any final? I'm going to give you the final question. Do you have any? Time is an illusion. I, I, it really is, <laughs> especially boy. when it comes to this show. Bryce, I want to pass it over <laughs> to you to ask any final question for, for our guests here uh, before we say goodnight. Well, we're going to have to have you guys back. There's so much we want to crack the code with you, gentlemen, and, and, and we appreciate it. I have, I have one I, last question. Oh, yeah. go ahead, Michael. I was going to say, I still need someone to explain ciphers to me because I'm too stupid to figure out these puzzles. But save it for another time. We'll need a whole masterclass to get me through some of that stuff. If Uh, you read the complete secret cipher of the Euphonauts three times, snap your fingers and say, I'm not in Kansas anymore, it will all be clear to you. Got it. Okay, great. 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 Also, right, Roswell is a balloon. We never got back to that, but I love it. That's another day. Yeah. Okay. Guys, what is sexual scrying? (laughs) 
Well, doggy, you're going to really want that at the end of the program. It's the same as all magical workings, except that it is uh, using a technique that I call scrying in the flesh. And this is, mm. you know, the difference between my book, The Grail Within, and other books on sex magic is I do talk about the theory. They all do. Mm. There are a lot of books on the subject, mostly back in the 80s and 90s, but of the last century. But uh, I spend about half the book talking about that. And then the other half of the book, very painful for me to write, was my own experiences. And that has not been written about by pretty much anybody. Lewis Culling took a stab at it many, many years ago and uh, he influenced me, but as the grand poobah of the OTO said, you're the only person that ever got anything out of Lewis Culling. So I said, okay, <laughs> that's fine. But um, so I talk a lot about personal stuff. Got it. And the fact is that all magical ritual involves inflaming the passion. Now, that mm. may not be sexual passion with uh, ritual magic. Yep. It may be like uh, the, the uh, ritual dancing that – yeah, yeah, or in uh, in Voudan or in uh, uh, Liber Reguli, which is one of Crowley's rituals that I have performed the long version of and very effective for Enochian stuff. You'll have to look it up, guys, gals. It's, we talk about it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and don't learn your pronunciation from Regerty or from Crowley because they didn't get it quite right. But, Good to know. Um well, it's, it's a, an approximation. I mean, I got it straight from John D. He called me. No, no. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> Hello, this is Dr. D. Hi, this is Dr. Greenfield. Can I help you? <laughs> so what it is is. Uh, energized enthusiasm, to steal a term from Crowley. It's using sexual passion mm. to create effects in reality. One of those effects is the so-called magical child, which is its not a person. It's not supposed to be. It is the manifestation of the bud will, which is to say something like um, – the tulpa mm. concept in Tibetan Buddhism. It's sure. a temporary being. I actually have reason to believe that some of the men in black cases actually are tulpas because they dissolve in front of the people that they're wow. you know, supposedly interviewing. So uh, one of Keel's best cases, the Cape May incident, a being that they that he called tiny. I don't know what the local people did, but apparently he started to dissolve and made a hasty <laughs> retreat because he was about to uh, use Heinlein's term, disincorporate. Whoa. <laughs> and I yeah. think that, yeah, but sexual energy is probably the most powerful energy that human beings have under, uh, shall we say, everyday circumstances. Mm. So if you direct that and focus that, for a specific ritual purpose, it will manifest. You have to stay focused and you have to, uh, but there are techniques for that. And one of them is in the book, The Grail Within. Isn't that the name well, of the book, Olaf? The Grail Within? I, 
I ordered yeah, it, so I'll, it. Let, our, I'll let our listeners know some more clues. Oh, boy. Gentlemen, 2023. No, 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 I, I, couldn't hear, I couldn't hear you, Olaf. What was the name of the book? The Grail Within, available on Amazon. I already or got Barnes my copy. Or Barnes & Noble or, or any Barnes of the... Noble yeah. or any, pretty much anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the... the Shop local, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's, no, that's, yeah. there's no local left. <laughs> <laughs> Be real. Book soup in LA, baby. Come on yeah. out to Los Angeles. Well, this would probably be a great time to say, you know, thank you guys so much. Where where can our listeners find your work? Mine? Uh, either one of you, yeah. At Olaf's house. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there, uh, for some reason, probably Olaf had something to do with it. There's a page devoted to my stuff on uh, Amazon. Mm, I think it's great. the Alan Greenfield page, so... Hey, well, I'm well, we'll put, um, we have we'll in the link, link tree, our, our link tree in Instagram and on Twitter. If people want to click that, we have an Amazon storefront that we put all of our guests books and works on. So we'll make sure that those books are up there. So you guys can just click the link in our bio and get onto our Amazon, uh, marketplace page and you can get those books. What do you yeah, get? 5%? Tell me the truth. Come on. I don't no, know. We, just, we pass along knowledge, you know, whether you're interested in secret ciphers it, it, or secret rituals. It doesn't, of the come men in black. it doesn't come out of your cut. That's for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Go check these no, guys no, no, out. No. Just type in their name and, and see their great work and, yes. and read it and, and, and find out what they're talking about. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the Bigfoot Collectors Club. I'm going to print up your, uh, Club Scout card uh right now and uh and thank you so much yeah we'll laminate it send it in the mail um Please. we really appreciate it we'll have to have you back i have a lot of questions especially Shave about her. Shave yes her. oh my gosh those dirty <laughs> I, I want to talk about shaver i want to talk about ray palmer i want to talk about gray barker we'll we'll have you back on we'll do another episode for sure thank you so much gentlemen Okay, Club Scouts, that wraps up another session here in the clubhouse. I want to thank, uh, well, we want to thank Olav and uh, Alan one more time. Do us a solid. Please follow, rate, and review Bigfoot Collectors Club on your favorite podcast app. If you write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we might read it on the show, like this one. Hannah Hizzy writes, Came to listen to Markiplier's and Wade's episodes and stayed because this show is the perfect mix of funny and super interesting. Bonus that I get to picture Michael as Henry from What I Like About You talk about paranormal stuff. How is this real life? I don't know, but I love everything about this. Five stars. Whoa, old school What <laughs> I Like go. About You, Finn. Nice. Uh, yeah. Hannah Hizzy, check out season three episode Girls Gone Wild, and you're going to see Bryce O. Johnson. That's how we met. It all goes back to collide. What I Like About Whoa, You. Taking it <laughs> back. If you want more BCC, you can join our Patreon, BCC The Other Side, for three additional exclusive bonus episodes every month. That's over at patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Bigfoot Collectors Club and on TikTok at BCC Pod. Check out my other podcast, Slate Your Name, and follow me on Instagram at McMills and hit me up on Cameo for a personalized video for yourself or a loved one. Yeah, why not? Hit us up too. I'm on there on Cameo. If you want a Christmas shout out, be happy to uh well, uh, to meet this you is coming you. in. This is the second. This is the second week in January. So Maybe Christmas yeah. 2023 is right around the corner. It, it, yeah, no, if you want one for the upcoming early. year or one that's a little late, then I'm your man. Uh, you know where to find me. <laughs> Valentine's Day. 
That's Love romantic. you guys. Woo! Um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm on Instagram as Peace Drone. I got a bunch of links on my uh, link tree there that you can check out. Uh, I'd also just like to say, uh, maybe uh, you know, if you're checking out the uh, the other side Patreon, maybe check out the Cosmic Tier. It's full of ambient music guys, and songs guys, I've written. Guys, yeah. someone yes, just Michael. walked by my window in the alley outside of my apartment and scared the fucking shit out of me. Not cool. <laughs> And we have a locked gate down, so I don't know what's going on, so I gotta go oh check boy. this out. Sorry, go on, Riley. I interrupt. Find Riley, please. It scared me. I'm so sorry. Also, if you're oh the God, person just in, in Michael's alley, maybe don't do that. <laughs> That's my plug. Leave it's Michael dark alone. out. That's scary oh as fuck. <laughs> yeah. And the yeah. my window is on the ground floor, and it just goes to just above like pupil level, so I just oh, see I like the top of the eye, the eyebrows, mm-hmm. and the heads walking by. Mm-mm. Pass, yeah. hard pass. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I stepped on your plugs. Close Listen to Spindrift, Tommy. Check out all this music. All right, yeah. we're crossing over to the other side for a fun size high strangeness about a little place called Booger County, Texas. Yep, you heard me. <laughs> if we don't see you there, we'll see you back here next week for an all new episode of BCC. Hi, everybody. Remember me? It's Applesauce. <laughs> Applesauce. I'll see you in Booger County. <laughs> until uh, until next week, good night. And go get regressed. I bet you forgot about your old friend. Bigfoot Collectors Club is produced by Riley Bray and Michael McMillan and scored and engineered by Riley Bray. Our theme song, Come Alone, is by Sun Eaters, courtesy of Lotus Pool Records. Do us a favor and support the show and unlock three bonus episodes every month by becoming a member of our Patreon, BCC The Other Side, which can be found at patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their case has had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday.